Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dave Snowden. Dave is the creator of the Cunovan Framework and originated the design of SenseMaker, the world's first distributed ethnography tool. He's the lead author of Managing Complexity and Chaos in Times of Crisis, a field guide for decision makers, a shared effort between the Joint Research Center, the European Commission's Science and Knowledge Service, and the Cunovan Center. He divides his time between the two roles, founder, chief scientific officer of the Cunovan Company, and founder and director of the Cunovan Center. His work is international in nature and covers government and industries looking at complex issues relating to strategy and organizational decision-making. He has pioneered a science-based approach to organizations drawing on anthropology, neuroscience, and complex adaptive systems theory. By using natural science as a constraint on the understanding of social systems, this avoids many of the issues associated with inductive or case-based approaches to research. He's a popular and passionate keynote speaker on a range of subjects and is well known for his pragmatic cynicism and iconoclastic style. I love that part of the bio. And I wanna thank you so much for joining me on The Deep Dive. How are you? It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. been familiar with your work and your perspective for, I would say, a fairly long time, not as long as many of your collaborators, because it's interesting when I started researching this to think that you were putting this all together in the late 90s. You know, I was in business school at that time. I was down at Duke, and this was just another one of those moments where I'm confronted with the human experience will never be able to encapsulate as much knowledge as there is out there. At the time in my life when I I thought I was my most academically focused, I was in all this rigorous classwork and planning a long career on Wall Street, which wasn't as long as I thought it would have been. And here you were in another part of the world, developing a framework and a way of thinking that only came into my world over the past five or or six years, give or take. So I I find that miraculous in in a manner of speaking. But I want to give you an opportunity to to share with my audience that might not be as familiar, you know, what was basically the, a little bit of the origin story of, of Cunovan, why this framework has developed over the, the past 20 years, give or take, because I think I want to use the word develop because I think you've made a point that this is not designed to be something that remains static. Yeah, it's probably in more or less its final form at the moment, but it's been evolving over 21 to 25 years, dependent on when you count it. So it's had a lot of change in that time. And I think the origins are probably threefold. So one is it really came originally from the field of knowledge management. And I was working with Max Boisso and playing with his iSpace concept. And kind of like the first version of Kinevin was my take on iSpace. 
and was really looking on work I was doing in IBM at the time on informal and formal communities and the role of informal communities in being a major strength of resilience in organizations. So the first version of Knevin was to encompass that, and that was published in Complex Acts of Knowing. Yeah, actually, you know, that was the second version. That was the first version with five domains in it. So that was kind of like one origin. Earlier than that, there was another driver in that I'm old enough now to have lived through so many management fad cycles that I really get fed up with it. And it's like, you know, we're going to be business process re-engineered, Six Sigma, learning organization, Blue Ocean strategy, Agile is the latest one. And I was a general manager for a period as well. And it was like every two to three months, we got another one of these sort of miraculous miracle cures coming through and we had to throw out everything we'd done and start again. And part of the principle of Knevin, which was really important, was that most things that we've done in the past work, we just took them too far. So there's this key concept in Kinevin of, of bounded applicability. And then kind of like the third period is where I really started to pick up on complexity theory or complex adaptive systems theory to be more technically accurate. And Kinevin then went through a series of mutations really to move from being about knowledge to being about complexity, which could also handle knowledge. And that, I think, is when it got picked up by the Agile community as well. Um, I still remember coming down to D.C. when I was working on in the Institute for Knowledge Management. And I met this really nice old guy. I didn't know who he was from Adam, all right? And we had a really good conversation. And then I turned around and saw a picture of him with Ronald Reagan and realized I was talking with Admiral John Poindexter, who is a, a, is a good Welsh socialist I wasn't meant to like, but he's still a good friend, and I have huge respect for him. And I drew Kinevin on, on his whiteboard, and he said, and this is an NSA, remember, he said, that explains 50 years of failure of the American foreign policy. And I think that was when a lot of things started to get traction. So yeah, multiple origins on that, but those were probably the three main sources. And you know, I, I remember the the Poindexter story, and I laughed to myself because I loved that confronted with with someone who ideologically you might not think you have a lot in common, you were able to cross that divide. So at, at some point, you know, in in hope that we have future conversations, I really want you to teach me how to do that. Uh, <laughs> Because I I suffer from from the ability to sometimes make that more philosophical leap with those there are on the some who are beyond the pale, as we say. Right? Yeah. So, that, so yeah, that includes you know, both our current leader and your previous leader. But um, otherwise, I think it's actually quite interesting because if you get to know somebody without knowing who they are. And then we bonded over Patrick O'Brien's novels. That, that was what we talked about for about 40 minutes. So it, it's a weird thing, all right? There's always something that you can resonate with with most people. That, that I would I would agree with that. I, I think it's good, though, that um, we do recognize that there are some that might be beyond the pale, and, as you as you mentioned. And, and you know, our, our former person in charge, I would definitely throw into that that category along with his his minions but you know it's it's interesting that that you did you say that and then in your bio you know you it mentions you know being pragmatic cynicism right and as i read your work and have interacted with your work i i actually don't see cynicism at all you know i i actually see quite the opposite so I want to I want to give you an opportunity as to to explain like why you describe why you why you chose that description. It, it was given to me, but I quite like it, so I use it. Right? You have to remember, I'm a philosopher by training. So yeah, you know, kind of like this general principle that Diogenes was right in his attitude to people. Right? 
but generally, I mean, one of the things I, where that came from is I said, look, one thing you need to realize as a leader in an organization is that people who appear cynical to you are the ones who care about the organization because they're quite happy for you to be pissed off with them because they're speaking truth unto power. And so you should listen to the cynics. And that's where it came from. So I think I'm using cynic in the sense of constant questioning and really opposed to stoicism, which I've never liked because I think that's the way of everybody being made to be happy. Right? Marcus Aurelius is a pain, right? But it's a sense of, of questioning and, and the pragmatism of it is questioning the context of practice. Yeah, as much as anything else. And in, in, in maybe in, in that respect, because I've, I've written about this a lot, where one of, the, one of the things I pointed out is, or I offer rather, is cynicism is, is often, in, at least in the way I'm using the term, often seems to be in service to powered interest. And, and what I mean by that is that when one is, is cynical, it's kind of like it's easy to kind of throw your hands up and say, well, it's always been like this. It's always going to be like this. So there's nothing I can do, right? Like I see that argument a lot in social circles. And Cunovan seems to fly in the face of that, which is why I, I wanted to have a little bit of back and forth around the cynicism. So again, it could just be my well, working you're, definition. You're picking up on something important. I mean, you have to remember a lot of my background is in Catholic theology, right? And there's a there, I mean, there's a wonderful book by Terry Eagleton called Hope Without Optimism. And one of the sort of cardinal sins in Christianity is to give up hope. Now, I think that's the key thing, all right? You can be cynical about what's possible. You can be deeply pragmatic about what's possible. But when you give up on hope, all is lost. And I, and I love the title. I mean, I knew Terry well in the 70s anyway, and he's, all his books are worth reading. But Hope Without Optimism is a really good book. and It makes the point. And if you survive large corporates, it's the same principle. I mean, I keep trying to explain this to idealistic people in Agile. They think leaders make rational decisions. I've sat in corporate strategy meetings. Rationality and objectivity have got nothing to do with it. It's 99% politics. And that isn't going to change in the near future. So you have to find ways to deal with that rather than try and say it shouldn't happen. I mean, that's my problem. You know, I'm just trying ideas. It's this stuff which Jim Rutt is pushing at the moment and others on game A and game B. Now, that to me is a classic form of what I call lotus eating or escapism. So you, you, you get the transmedia people to produce this wonderful video about, you know, plan B and, you know, it would be wonderful if we all did this and you've got, you know, saintly people walking around in elven Sylvian glades, all right? And now all of a sudden you can say, well, let's get plan B and you can forget where the hell people are at the moment. And I think one of the things which are really attracted by, by complexity theory is it basically says you don't talk about the future, you talk about what's the next adjacent possible in the present, yeah, which I sometimes call the Frozen 2 strategy. If you know that lovely song in the middle of Frozen 2 is all I can do is do the next right thing. So this concept of where am I and what's what's possible next is a key aspect, I think, of complexity theory and sense making. And it really counters the sort of very idealistic traditions you see in management and elsewhere about defining an ideal future state and then being surprised when you never achieve it. But then the consultants come in and you do the same thing again on a sort of two to three year cycle. And, you know, we, we jumped ahead because I wanted to to get into that space because in the in the report that you sent me and I, I went through, it, it it makes that very point that the idealizing around a, a future state, you know, is one of our challenges, right? And I, and I just published this whole piece about imagination. So this is very much on my mind, right? And 
I don't know. I'm I'm re, I'm projecting a lot of my what I've read on onto you. So I'm curious what you think about this. That you know when you talked about coming up with a name and all, you're a poet at heart, my friend. Like I feel <laughs> I feel that from you, and I feel that the the arts and literature and and the things that really motivate us as as human beings, kind of in is a is a function of your imagination to a certain perspective right? Like this, in bits and pieces, everything that's been created around us, someone had to think of it, right? So I'm, I want to, I'm dancing around trying to get to the ideal future state is the next best thing, but we have to imagine the next best thing. Yeah, but that, that's, I mean, remember, I'm coming from a background in physics and philosophy with a fair sprinkling of theology in the process, all right? And I also come from a heavily oral tradition. Yeah, I'm Welsh, all right? So we actually have preaching competitions and we give prizes to poets. And, you know, every week at school we debated. So every week I'd walk up to the front of the class and I'd be given a card and it would say something like, you support capital punishment. And I had to speak about something which I think is profoundly evil for seven minutes in supported it without preparation. And we did that every week. And I think one of the things that that teaches you is this, first of all, you have to understand your audience. You, you don't. Once you get good at this, you don't actually have a plan or a PowerPoint slide set. I mean, I, I do a lot of keynotes without slides. You first of all probe the audience to see what they are, and then you can actually take them on a journey. And we don't do enough of that, right? The other thing, I think you're right, to, but there is actually a science behind poetry. I mean, art comes before language in human evolution, and it looks like one of its main functions is in, in invention. So by you know, moving up a level of abstraction. I mean, I got the idea for liminality in Kinevin when I was looking at Caravaggio's Seven Mercies in Naples, and it suddenly came to me, right? So what art does is it moves you away from the material in order that you can make novel connections. Right? So all of that is kind of like good news. There's actually, there are materialist versions of aesthetics now. I'm, I'm a materialist in that sense. But the, the issue is, if you're going to take people on a journey, the next stage has got to be realistic. And that's been the problem with all corporate change. And it's this danger with idealism. So we say we will be X type of company. Now, there are several problems with that, right? Or X type of society. One is, actually, you can't have a context-free solution in a context-specific world. So parts of the company are going to be different stages at different times. And the company's never going to be this sort of homogenized, perfect future state. Second problem is, there's no way you're going to achieve it. So you set up the conditions for disappointment and disillusionment, which will then get carried over. I mean, the worst thing you do in a corporate these days is announce a change initiative, because everybody remembers all the previous failed change initiatives, and they just hunker down and get ready to deal, oh, God, what's the bloody jargon this time, right? And I think the other, but the biggest thing for me is if you start a journey with a sense of direction, and you do need a sense of direction, and that's where the sort of thing you talked about can come in, you're open to novel discovery on the pathway. If you're too specific about the goal, you won't see novelty. Yeah? And, and that's a missed opportunity. And actually, it, it means you lack resilience. And, you know, I want to continue on this on this thread a, a little bit. And it's, it's funny, I showed you all these notes and I barely scratched the surface on the notes because I've gone, I've jumped into this part of the conversation first. But Probably my fault. But um... No, I, I think it's, I kind of, in my mind, imagine this was kind of, again, that word imagination, I kind of thought this was kind of go this, this way. So I was open to the novelty, right? Here we go. We're open to these novel moments. And I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this quote for a, a little bit, but you know, one of my 
intellectuals, superheroes. I've mentioned her a lot on the show, so listeners are probably tired of hearing her name. I hope not. Is someone like Ursula K. Le Guin, and you know she she famously says, "Hand of Darkness" is the best exploration of power and sexuality ever written. See, um, we're kindred spirits here, right? <laughs> and, um, and 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 everybody who's a libertarian in the state should go and read Dispossessed and just realize how bad it can go. So, but either way, sorry, you're absolutely not that subject. Yeah, and guests are our listeners are also used to me railing against the absurdity of libertarianism. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I always come back to her her quote. She won award an award late in her career. And um, again, this is a paraphrase, you know, that we can basically change anything we want. You know, we once believed in the divine rights of kings and we no longer believe in that. Right. Like, I think the queen just had her her long, longest time in power and no one would believe that the queen has any divine right to rulership. He's English. The last ruler of Wales was killed by the English in the 14th century. So don't expect me to support that. Is that... And and I am the the son of colonized parents in in Barbados and Guyana, so I'm right there with you. Um, so I, I reference her quote to say that, and in the moment we are living in a in a state, we often can't see the the change, right? But yet we are working towards something that can emerge that is different, right? So how do we square that that vision? But part of that is mapping. So, I mean, the thing we originally developed for Poindexter et al. for the U.S. government then went on with the Singapore government, and that became a, the ethnographic software sense maker. So one of the things we do with that, for example, we're doing some work on peace and reconciliation in the States at the moment post-election, but we've pioneered the concept of using young people as journalists into their environment to gather stories from that, that cult, those cultures. And this is all also, by the way, about epistemic justice, because you need people from the community itself gathering and interpreting the stories, not people from the then dominant culture. So from that, I can actually draw what's called a landscape map. So I can actually show the dominant patterns of belief and ideas within the system. And I can do that at scale. Now, the theoretical side of that is that in complexity terms is called a strange attractor. In narrative theory is called a trope. In philosophy, is called an assemblage. So it's a pattern of belief which acts rather like a whirlpool. And of course, sometimes the whirlpool is stronger than others, and you actually can't escape it. So one of the things Deleuze, who's the originator of assemblage theory, came up with is this idea of lines of flight. So you have to find weaknesses in the assemblage structure which would allow you to escape it. And you can't do that just by deciding you want to be somewhere else. You have to do it by finding that line of flight from where you are. And I think a lot of our work now is to make that visible to communities. This is this new theory of change where you get people to say, well, what could we do tomorrow to create more stories like these and fewer stories like that? So we don't talk about any idealized quality. We make that deeply pragmatic quite quickly. And some of our peace and conflict research, for example, I've just we just created an association with the Carter School at GMU on this, is to identify micro-narratives which are common on a day-to-day basis between theoretically warring parties and then get people from both communities to work on those problems and have a conversation about their differences in the context of working together rather than force them into a workshop where you try and knock heads and take the privilege and all that sort of stuff. Yeah? And I mean, we did that back in Northern Ireland in the 70s. There was 
you know, the Coromila approach where everybody would be got together in a big workshop and everybody would agree that Catholics shouldn't throw petrol bombs at Protestants and Protestants shouldn't murder Catholics and so on. And then within weeks, they were doing it again, uh, wonderfully satirized in episode one of series two of Derry Girls, where the Catholic girls are forced into a peace and reconciliation <laughs> process with the Protestant boys. Uh, we, I was working in Glencree then, this is kind of like the Jesuit area, and we, we took a different approach. We took small groups from both communities and we dumped them into Latin America for six months. And they suddenly discovered they had more in common than they thought, and then they had, could have the conversation about their differences in a very different context. And I think if you want to achieve change, you, you've got to change the context in which the conversation is taking place. And that's always been a problem, for example, with counterterrorism, is anybody who studied history knows that sooner or later you can have to negotiate with a terrorist. And the later you leave it, the worse it's going to get. If you look at the current confrontations going on around the Ukraine, I'm booked to be in the Ukraine in May, and it's an open question whether I'll be able to go or not, right? We're not, we're not coming back to, we're not leaving a line of flight for people who've taken a confrontational position. So this idea of you, you've got to find a pathway for people to take yeah, if you're going to, if you're going to actually make progress or get out of things. And that requires you to focus on mapping and then making decisions rather than deciding what you want to be and then producing the map, because then the map will just support your idea anyway. In, you know, there's, there's so much in, in that thinking to to work through you know we've seen attempts at truth and reconciliation in South Africa we you know the United States is is clearly a, a deeply polarized society I actually don't think it's any more polarized than it's ever been from a historical perspective but I'll put the a pin in that I think you're pretty um, close to the Gilead scenario yeah <laughs> red states become redder and blue states become bluer and sooner or later there's a border yeah <laughs> exactly. Though I, I think some of those states are not quite as as red as one would imagine. They're red by a lot of creation, legal creation. But none, but nonetheless. Yeah, and by the way, we wish you'd stop doing it because our right wing are copying all the voter suppression mechanisms that your right wing have developed. Absolutely. We've just gone to photo ID and gerrymander. I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming a standard practice. It's quite scary. We are the leaders in, I've always said one of America's biggest strengths is cultural power, soft power. And we've been very good at exporting some of our worst qualities. We're, we're kind um, of like waiting for you to discover democracy. We think it would be a good idea if you if you adopted it. Well, given given my chocolatey brownness, I'm hoping we <laughs> discover it as well. You know, <laughs> that would be a major step yeah. in the right direction at 49 years of my life. And I'm still waiting waiting to experience it. I've seen the ideal, the vision, yet not yet seeing it fully in practice. Um, so in, in the examples that you give and some of my tongue-in-cheek references, you know, this is actually very deep work that happens, again, when you're talking about telling stories and, and having a new line. This is also emotional work. Like you said about organizations, they're, they're not rational, right? Your CEO is not a rational actor. And we can probably even parse how, what does rationality really mean in the larger context, right? So I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, spend a little bit more time going through some of these notions of, you know, hurt that are very hard for people to parse when, when placed in these opportunities. 
I think one of the things, and I'm not the only person saying this, I was in the first group, I think, is that we've got a real problem in the West in that the enlightenment concept of humanity dominates. And, you know, the basic assumption there is that kind of like if you just present the right information to the right people and you give them the right education, miraculously, they'll all make the right decisions. And even though several centuries would indicate that's a bad idea, we still it's still the underlying trope behind how people think you should change things. Right. So, I mean, I had a, a big row. I'm be careful about who I say I was with. All right. So there's been a, a, a bunch of. Yeah, election specialists in the states. So kind of like it's all about how do we control the narrative? How do we create the narrative? How do we counter you know information warfare? Like you know people being targeted with deliberate lies at a family level the day before they vote, which is what's going on at the moment. And I was saying, well, you you can't counter information warfare by better information warfare because you'll always lose out to the bad guys. What you actually have to do is to increase the empathetic contact. And there were some people from Georgia on, and they just came in and supported that because. You need to get on the streets and you need to create these personal relationships between people. Then the bad ideas can't come through. But we've got a whole bunch of people who are just obsessed with information, I think. Um, and it, we, we partly made that worse in schools. I've, I've said for years, I don't think we should teach computer science in schools. I think it's a major mistake because by the time, the, I mean, we were taught it in high school, right? I was taught how to use a punch card machine and told I'd have a job for life. Now, teaching kids Java code is the modern equivalent, because by the time they get to university, there'll be something completely different. What we should be doing is teaching them anthropology and design and philosophy. And we shouldn't be allowing anyone near a computer without some basic training in ethics. I mean, yes, yeah, part of the problem with AI, right? If you, if you look, I'm going to be deliberately extreme at the moment. Yeah, most work on AI has been done by misogynist males on the West Coast of the States who take Anne Rand seriously after puberty, which is grounds for mental, you know, commitment for mental illness. All right. So th this this is deeply problematic in terms of the way we're constructing our universe. And we're disintermediate. We're, we're between too many mediating layers between people and people. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we need to start to work on more is, is what you might call intimacy. Right. And intimacy isn't achieved by connecting people through information technology. Yeah, that, that was a mistake a lot of the people behind the internet thought. They thought, if, well, if, if everybody's connected with everything else, the Enlightenment myth, everything will be rational. Actually, what happened is everybody got to hate each other more because there was so much connectivity that the connections, in order to handle the cognitive load of the connection, you end up in this cluster of people who hate people like you hate people. And politicians have to work towards hatred rather than any sort of consensus because that's the only way they'll get elected. So I'm, I'm rambling around on this a bit, but we've we, we've we've lost a lot of, of what we need, right? If you go into Latin America, it's actually there's quite interesting difference, right? If I give a lecture in Latin America in business, I can be quite academic and go on for 90 minutes and they don't complain. If I do that in the States or the UK, they just give up after five minutes. So that sort of reflective openness listening we're sort of losing that because we're getting into this immediacy of satisfaction, yeah, whether it's intellectual or reinforcement or whatever. And you need to, I mean, I did two months of field ethnography in Tea Party communities in the Midwest once, which was interesting. I went in sort of just to live in them. And I remember going back to Washington and saying, look, guys, you're getting them wrong. These guys are socialists. They don't realize it. But actually, if you look at their day-to-day -day practice, they're socialists. You know, they're heavily community-based, it's heavily church-based, they look after people, they can't understand why everybody else isn't doing the same. 
and you're calling it completely wrong in terms of the way you're treating it. Yeah, there's. I mean, I, I love that whole train, and I don't. I don't actually think it's it's rambling at all. I think this is the, actually the critical, the critical things that we need to take a look at. And I, I will. I laughed at the Ann Rand point because Ann Rand got me for like three days when I first got to. When I first got to college, I was 17 and I read The Fountainhead and I was like, oh my God, this is so great. Then I looked around, I went to Howard University is a predominantly um, what we call a HBCU, historically black college and university. And I was like, I can't believe in this bullshit, right? Like I'm a, like, I'm a product of a deeply social community-based reality. I'm, I'm not Howard Rourke. And I, got, well, I got blocked from, the, there was a major arbitration case on Wikipedia about Anne Rand. And I got banned from contributing to the Anne Rand article for three months, but I was allowed to contribute constructively to the talk page. Yeah, um, but the Randonistas got banned for a year or two years each, so I considered myself a necessary sacrifice in that one. <laughs> but I was—I mean, I was young and naive. I mean, I'd be much better at it. I'm much more experienced on Wikipedia, which, by the way, is a brilliant example of a complex adaptive system. Now, I hadn't realised Jimmy Whale is an Anne Rand fan, so there was a degree of prejudice on that. Right, so you've got to be careful. But also, as far as I was concerned, she wasn't a philosopher. I mean, nobody no. takes her as a, you go to any of the dictionaries of philosophy anywhere in the world. But the Anthem Foundation has funded three or four American colleges to set up an Anne Rand School, of, which actually means there's a reference which says she's a philosopher. And and that was, I didn't understand how to deal with that, right? But as I Absolutely. say, I think it's, it, it's, it's amazing how one person who basically condemned Kant but hasn't read it, yeah, famously said there are three great A's, Aristotle, Aquinas, and Anne, all right, which, you know, and, and at West Point basically said Native Americans and Palestinians have no, you know, it's okay to commit genocide because they have no right to property. Therefore, they're not human beings. And the idea that anybody like that can dominate a huge political swathe of thinking, that illustrates how tropes happen. Yeah. And yeah, this is a big problem. Every time, I would, for my many and various sins, I had to read every tweet that Trump wrote every morning for a project I was working on for four years. Right, so I'm looking at these tweets, and now I'm withdrawal symptoms still because I haven't. You know, I need my righteous indignation every morning, and there isn't a trigger mechanism for it. But I kept arguing with people and said, "Look, what Trump is doing is using key phrases to trigger reinforcing tropes or assemblages." And every time you attack him from a liberal, rational perspective, you make the problem worse, not better, because you're feeding energy into this assembly structure. And he almost lost it, if you remember, on the kids, on the refugees on the border. Yeah. And nobody really moved that quick enough. That could have killed him at that point. Yeah, because that was something which, you know, come back, that was empathetic. Everybody could see their own kids there. Yeah. You see the same thing in the Mediterranean refugee thing. And I think that that's the issue. It's, it's this over-focus on a rational, objective, information-centric argument. And it's, it's, a, it's also this lack we've got of community. Right Now, part of that, actually, I'm not saying everybody needs to be religious, but the one thing that religious groups do is they create a sense of community. And when I go and see Mary Boone, yeah, who I wrote the Harvard article with, and we're writing a book together. We've been writing a book together for 15 years. We will get around to it soon. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people go to her church. This is in Essex, Connecticut, all right? 
Now, it's interesting, I'm, I'm a Catholic, all right? You know, it's Protestant, but to be quite honest, they sing a couple of hymns and they have a Sunday school, and then the preacher gives a give a long talk about Palestine. And then, then they resolve the community issues because it's either the church or the gardening club, all right? And you don't want to fall out with either of those in Essex because if you do, you're dead, all right? But the point is, and when I was going to Catholic churches in Ireland, kind of like the men would sit outside the bell rang and they'd go in. But standing outside, they'd be talking about the community problems. So we've, we've, in a modern fragmented world, we've lost those human interactions, yeah, which actually create a different sort of media or a different dispositional state or in constructive theory, a different substrate in which it's very difficult to get too negative, right? And I think this is the thing we talk about in complexity. What the internet is at the moment is an unbuffered feedback loop. And if you have an unbuffered feedback loop, it will always become perverted. And some of the stuff we're doing, for example, with the citizen journalism thing is increase the amount of human agency in the system so we can increase human buffering in the system in terms of the way the information flows. And again, that's understanding the complexity of network connectivity. And again, that's a different type of approach from what we've had for the last three or four centuries. And it it seems like this, this rationality that we were talking about through the Enlightenment has created a certain amount of thinking that influences and leads us to this sort of techno utopianism, this kind of techno optimism, the idea of human beings as machines. There's this function of, of time and mechanics, our minds. Yeah. Our minds work as, as computers to a certain extent. So our, our allegories. By the way, it's complete nonsense. Absolutely. Our, our allegories, our stories, these tropes are all in a, a mechanical, deterministic way of thinking. So the machine might change. At one point, we were clocks. Now we're computers or, or network systems. And Cunovan, to me, and again, this is my inter- interpretation, and I think it's why I responded to it so much and why I've enjoyed this, this train of, of conversation, is that it feels despite the fact that I know you said science and all these kind of things, it feels far more of a natural flowing system, much more in line with our state as human beings, which is social. You know, you mentioned the the social community aspects. When I go through this, I think to myself that you need other people, other actors in these states in order for this to be but that's, but that's like anti-science, all right? So if we, I mean, let's come back to where you, if, if you look at Descartes, what Descartes does is he does this great separation of the mind and the body. And Mary Midgley said, she thinks, I mean, brilliant British philosopher, if you haven't read a book on science and poetry, which is a demolition of Dawkins, it's, it's really worth reading. She's one of the, the four great women philosophers in the UK who went to university during the war when there was no male competition. Yeah, and they're, they're a really interesting group, you know, along you know, with Anscombe and Warnock and like and either way, she basically said he did that because he wanted to create a space for God and a space for science because he was afraid of being burnt alive, right? which is a fair, yeah, it's a reasonable reason to do something. The trouble is that now pervades, all right? So that this sort of mind-body dualism is fundamental, and it also is it's like the nonsense of the singularity. I remember saying at a conference in California once, you know, if you believe in the singularity, your body is prob- your mind is probably ossified to the point where for you it may be possible. And I think Kersel was in the audience, but either way, we cover it. But we, we now know, if you, if you look at what we now know, is we know that a lot of our decisions are made by our bodies and social interactions. So consciousness is a distributed function. 
you know, once you understand that consciousness is a distributed function and you understand some of the mechanisms for that, and for example, we now know through epigenetics that culture can inherit within two generations. So all of a sudden, social practice gets transformed because, and this is what we talk about when we talk about naturalizing sense-making, is we use science as a fallback mechanism. So if, if the science says it can't happen, it can't happen. If the science says it would happen this way, that's what we work on. And that gives us, it, it breaks the other big thing that you can see for the last century in, in management thinking, the overfocus on cases. And that's the wrong model of science because, you know, if you take two books, all right, Good to Great and Lean Startup, which people quote a lot, and they commit the fundamental error of only looking at positive cases in a limited number, right? Now, you know, and, and that's bad research, right? And also it confuses correlation with causation. Right. So, you know, famous thing I always quote on that is that if you know a country wants to increase the number of Nobel Prizes it wins, all it has to do is increase dark chocolate consumption. Because dark chocolate consumption per head of population directly correlates with Nobel Prizes per head of population for the last 40 or 50 years on a much bigger data set than any management scientist or social scientist has ever worked on. And the other one, which is possibly is causal, if you don't know it, is that suicides, peaks in suicides by drowning directly correlate with the release of Nicolas Cage movies, but I can see a reason for that one, right? So this sort of false correlation and this case is inductive, what we call inductive thinking, yeah, is quite dangerous. And when things are changing rapidly, the last thing you do is you should base, you shouldn't base practice on cases from the previous period, because that's bad practice. So this is where we move into what's called abduction, which is the great contribution of the American pragmatist to logic. And abduction is known as a logic of hunches. So what's the most plausible connection between unconnected things? And human beings are really good at this, by the way, which is why we're inventive, but it's why we're also prone to conspiracy theories. So one of the problems that you know John Poindexter gave me years ago is how to create an objective approach to abduction. And again, that's what we did with SenseMaker. So it's, it's how do you identify how this intuitive insight is a better pathway than that intuitive insight? And what you're now doing in change is identifying what are called coherent pathways and exploring them in parallel to see what's possible. Yeah? And again, what I'm doing there is I'm mixing science and the humanities. And I'll make another general point here. There isn't a generalist left in the US or the UK under the age of 60 because the educational system started to reward generalists, specialists, not generalists. And in an age of uncertainty, we desperately need generalists. Well, I'm under, I'm under 60. <laughs> we need people who know a lot, a, a little about a lot. And it's not that nonsense of T-shape. If you, if you Deep knowledge of one field and shallow knowledge of others, that's not the same thing as your privileged one. It's this sort of highly generalized education, which was common for some people, and the ability to move between disciplines and synthesize them. We need more, more people able to do. And the good thing is kids can do this without a problem. I mean, I, I've actually got kids of five or six using Kinevin when their adults said they wouldn't understand it, but they got it straight away. Yeah. Um, and it's this, we, 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 we overprotect, we overstructure. I mean, sorry, we're getting into another area at the moment. The degree to which education is controlled and structured in terms of outcomes is deeply damaging. And what it ends up doing is it ends up privileging the elite who can afford private education. So, you know, that, that disparity of education is partly caused by an overfocus on measurement in state education. And, you know, in a lot of, of what you're talking about there, there is a, a sense of, you know, what I'll, what I'll use for lack of a, of a better term is fluidity. You, mm. you, you talk about this idea that 
Knevin lives in different states at at the same time. That's and, what it means as word. It's, yeah. It's, it's a flow of meaning over time with many partially understood things. And our our lived experiences as human beings which is which is why I feel like it's a natural thing. And, and you know, my earlier statement was not an anti-science statement. It was more in the sense that in my mind, what is science or what is rational is always a shifting, moving target. You know, the, the way in which we perceive those things are different, right? Because in, as a quick example, that rational state, which is dominated from a, a European perspective, a Western perspective, would be different from an indigenous state, but there's still science in those spaces. Yeah, but I think we need to be careful here, right? I mean, I did a lot of work in indigenous communities in Australia mm-hmm. back in the 70s, right? And they're pragmatic, right? And mm-hmm. Knowledge exists independently of perception. You wouldn't see that challenged in indigenous community, but it's challenged in the Western environment. So and you see this with systems thinking. I mean, systems thinking says that all systems have boundaries and it's all about human perception. And you keep trying to say, well, that's why complexity is different, guys, because we know systems don't have boundaries and we know some things can be known objectively. And, and this is where coherence becomes a really important concept. So, for example, I can say, and if anybody of your listeners are offended by this, I don't apologize for it, you know, that um, evolutionary theory is coherent to the facts, but we know it's wrong in parts. So we, you know, if you look at the neo-Darwinians, they, you know, they challenge Lamarckianism. We now know Lamarck was right in part. So these things change over time. But the point is the facts, are co- the fact that idea is coherent to the facts at the time. On the other hand, young earth creationism is incoherent to any facts. So it's not a pathway you would pursue. And, and this is Thagard and other people's work. So the idea of how do we measure coherence so that we can exclude things which are a waste of time and actually, societies are quite good at that when we work together anyway. I mean, you know, an indigenous community will eliminate nonsense far faster than the Western community, right? Because it's a survival mechanism. But I think that's what we're trying to work on is, again, it's this pathway concept. And and I just got a new framework out. So there are three big frameworks in my universe, Kinevin, Fletcher's Curse. But the, the big one at the moment has just taken an idea from quantum mechanics called constructor theory along with complexity theory and several others. So we're not trying to implement it per se. And that's currently the working title for it is the estuarine model. So I'm using the metaphor of an estuary. And it's partly to try and contradict constructional laws. So it's basically saying, look, in an estuary, the water can come in and the water can go out. It's never it's never a single flow, right? And you know, the granite cliff, you only need to survey every, every 50 years, but the sandbanks, you need to check every day. Yeah, and what goes on, and you have to read from the clues on the water what's possible and which are sensible pathways. And sometimes you just need somebody local because they know how to do it, and no map will give enough. And I think that estuarine model is is quite important for me because it carries this concept of some things are known, some things can be known indirectly, some things you have to accept you don't know, and things are in flux and changing. But there are stabilities within that flux. And those you can manage. And it's quite, and if you go back to the origin of the word manage in English, I quote this one a lot, right? It comes from an Italian, and I can't pronounce Italian, but I love Italy. But my, I'm dyslectic, my pronunciation is terrible, right? The word manage originally comes from an Italian word, I think, menegore, which is the ability to ride a horse in dressage. It then gets <laughs> corrupted by the French. You know, many things have been corrupted by the French, not as many as by the English, but many things have been corrupted to mean household management, which is how we now see it. So we talk about manage or menage. 
So is it riding a horse or is it managing a household budget? Right now, most of complexity, most of human society is more the sort of riding the horse. But the point is, you still manage it. Yeah. Um, but you can't you know what you can't manage. And it's this I come back to it. It's this knowledge of what what is a counterfactual, what isn't possible, what pathways are coherent yeah, for the people you're working with at that time. Yeah. And then pursue the coherent pathways and get rid of the bad ones. And I think that that flux, that grabbing onto fluidity, as, as you kind of talk about this new model, is is really important. And there was a there was a line I, I jotted down when, you know, I'm kind of going through the notes here, where I, I wondered about states and because I, I think often in, in when I say states, like the nation, the current nation states that we're in and the, you know, what I would call broadly empire. You know, they, yeah, they work the in subject now, right? <laughs> you know, these things work in service to empire. And how much do they have an ability to understand when the sort of counterfactuals that exist, can they take them into account in a way that makes it effective? I think it's very difficult. And I think we have to be realistic. And I, I've been arguing for some time that there's a natural population size for a society to be culturally coherent. And I reckon it was round about five to seven million. And I was talking with Robin Dunbar on a call the other day, and he basically says there is some no evidence to support that. And if you look around it, Scandinavia, the countries are at sub five million, New Zealand is sub five million, Wales, Scotland, Ireland are sub five million. And once Wales and Scotland got quasi-independence from England, you actually find there's far more consensus-based decision making because everybody knows everybody at some level. Yeah. Whereas the minute you get up to Britain, which is 60 million, it's just too big, right? So I, mean, I was at a big conference in Bruges in the EU, and I mean, I and others were basically saying what you really need in Europe, I mean, this is the days before the English took us out of it, right, is you need to have something at a European federal level to handle finance and defence, because you've got to have a counter to basically Russia, China and America, uh, none of which, by the way, I think are really democracies. Right? I mean, Europe is bad in parts, but at least it's generally democratic. But within that, you need smaller states, and they have to find ways of reaching agreement. If you if it's dominated by France, Germany, and Britain, well, it's not. Everything else is a satellite. And you can see this in the US. I mean, I don't want to get back into the Civil War, Yeah, and we, yeah but fundamentally, states are a more cohesive unit than the USA. Now, which doesn't mean that what individual states did was right or wrong, although I still think real slavery would have died out faster without the Civil War. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of real effective slavery as opposed to theoretical, you know, the sort of legal notion of it. Right. But fundamentally, the units are too big. And then, then people, and that didn't matter so much until the internet came along. But then people could cluster in these smaller groups on the internet. And I mean, a friend of mine in the Mount, he said it brilliantly one day. He said it used to be that every village had an idiot and it didn't mind, didn't matter because everybody knew who the idiot was. But now the idiots have banded together on the Internet to legitimize idiocy. So the cultural cohesion is now space independent, which means it's empathy, contact independent, but it's still working within those natural limits. And I think what we've got to start to do at the society level is organized in such a way that we get this cultural cohesion around difficult decisions like education and you know, all those sort of areas. Yeah? Whereas you know, the whole finance, defense, and actually global warming, we're quite honest on global warming, we need something which is beyond the states. I mean, to be quite honest, if you know, again, you may or may not want to cut this, if, if the election goes the wrong way in two or three years' time in the states, it's over for the planet. Absolutely. 
I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> that could be a whole, <laughs> we got a lot of issues if, if this, if this goes the wrong way. And I am, I am not optimistic. Um, as a, no, as a I, staunch I, I, progressive, I'm not optimistic. optimistic. Just keep reminding that hope without optimism. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I gotta, I gotta dive into that to, to, to better get a sense for it because I do believe that hope is an activity. You know, it is a, it is a, it is an action verb in a sense. And it's a cardinal virtue for good reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in an odd way that the hope of Obama has made us cynical for toward the word hope, you know, to kind of go circle, yeah. um, at least in an American concept, right? So I, I always preface by saying, look, I live I here. It's a great pity. He had, he, if he'd been vice president to Hillary and taken over, the world would be a better place. He just wasn't ready for it. <laughs> well, he had never a- accepted. And I, I was in D.C. for inauguration, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a fight with people in the White House. And I've got all these people coming off the train with this huge sense of hope. And I'm sitting there thinking, this isn't going to work. This is too high an expectation. Mm. Yeah, And I think, you know, it, it's that there were ways that could have been managed better, I think. Right. Um, but by the time it started to get managed better, it was six years into an eight-year term. Yeah, and that needed to get started, right? That's uh, much earlier in the cycle, I think. And and we're we're still the fallout of that, right? Like, there's a lot of of issues around, you know, just the American project. I think if if people haven't truly studied it, deeply studied it, mm-hmm. it's very hard for someone on the outside to understand it. Not that America is, is wholly unique. I think you could say that of any country, but like you said, it's out, it's, it's outsized position in a connected world makes it critical to understand. And it's, it's also followed the Roman English American pattern. If you actually look at it in terms of its architecture and everything else, that's one pattern of imperialism. And it's, and it's interesting, all three use citizenship as a weapon. Absolutely. Yeah, in terms of the way it worked. And all three taxed overseas citizens, which is also unique. So I think the, the pattern of empire was problematic. The Chinese are much more interesting. We, we did this big project for Poindexter on how empires fail. And I won't go into too much detail, but we had to exclude China because the way China works is they let the barbarians conquer them and they make them Chinese through their civil service. And that's actually what they've been doing with capitalism. They've made capitalism Chinese and they're actually better at it. And actually, if you want a nation which is going to probably solve global warming before anybody else for itself, it will be China. Because they're already well advanced on alternative forms of power. They own most of the mineral rights around the world. I mean, we got this big issue coming up in terms of the dilemmas of how do you get people, and I've been arguing this on global warming for some time, you've got to get people to see sacrifice at a local level for them to accept sacrifice at an international level. And we're not doing that work to create a dispositional state where, where global warming becomes relevant to individuals. I mean, South Florida are starting to get it now because they're getting flooded, but North Florida yeah. don't want to do it. Yeah, they're drowning. Yeah. So, but even North Florida don't want to accept it. So, yeah, you, you've got this problem even on evidence. But. I was laughing with some friends because they posted a, a recent, I think it was in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal. It might have been e- either one of those. They're kind of the same, saying that, you know, Florida, Miami, specifically, yeah. is the city of the future. It's going to lead us for the next 20 years. And I was like, Miami's going to be underwater within within 10. <laughs> in, in the Netherlands, they're now talking about Breda by the sea. 
right? Because braid is high. It's the first point where you get above where the sea level is going to be. Amsterdam will go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you're if you're betting on Miami being the the future of of American cities and ingenuity, buy a boat. Good luck with that one. Um, I, I want to get us into uh, a, one more question before we get to the the final two segments of the show, which are very quick. One is off the dome, and the other one is the drop. I was thinking about one of the references you made around the the parable of of the sower yeah. um, reference, which in in my frame, I instantly think of Octavia Butler, who I'm not sure if you if you've read her work, but oh, come on, I'm a science fiction fan, right? The chance of me not reading Octavia Butler is really right? You know, to be honest, my friend, you know, the reason why I said I don't know is because when you talked about general knowledge, and I remember again the story where you you got some money as a kid and you went and you bought like all these books, mm. right? And these things really resonate with me because, like you said, people don't do this kind of stuff anymore. One books cost a little bit more, right? So you can't really like a hundred books is a big investment. But uh, but that aside, there's less of an interest in like kind of checking a bunch of different things out. And it's it's often amazing to me how I'll talk to people and they all use the same references. They all mm-hmm. talk about the same thing. So I, I never know what anybody's done. It is encouraging, though, because June got Oscar nominations, which I didn't expect, all right? And that actually is quite good news, because A, it was a brilliant film that was authentic to the book, and B, June has got more in it about ecosystems than any other science fiction book ever published, except possibly Sherry S. Tipper's Grass. But, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, so there's hope, right? So the the parable of the, of the, of the sower reference... Yeah. And obviously the the amazing Octavia Butler, it really, when that was mentioned in, in the work, it just kind of triggered her thoughts and the way her book goes. And I, I was wondering that we spend so much time thinking about these systems in the space of, of knowledge and knowledge gathering and, and how we respond to that in, in complexity. Do you think that there's a difference between knowledge and, and wisdom? yeah. People who talk about knowledge aren't pretentious. People who talk about wisdom are always pretentious in the modern world. I mean, it's that data, information, knowledge, wisdom nonsense, all right? Um, I mean, I gave up on the whole wisdom management stuff because I remember sarcastically on conference creating a five-level triangle which had eschatological realization above wisdom and half the audience didn't realize I was being satirical, which was depressing. <laughs> so, I mean, I've always seen knowledge as the way you, ca- you create information out of data. So if you don't share a knowledge base, you can't do it. So we've just done it. We've mentioned this, Le Guin Dispossessed. We've, we've used an abstract language, which means that the information is flowing. So my view is you focus on knowledge as shared knowledge because that information is likely to be used consistently. And books and references are there. Coming back to the parable of the cell, my mother and father were good atheists. I mean, I punished them by becoming a Catholic, right? <laughs> but my mother, by the time I was 12, I'd read Shakespeare, Homer, and the whole Bible. Because she's, I mean, this is education in Wales, all right? She said, you will not understand European literature unless you know your Bible backwards. And she's right. Yeah, and it's a rich form of these metaphorical concepts. So, you know, you know render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's explains... Derrida's concept of aporia in a brilliant way. It's a question which can't be answered without thinking differently. And I think the parable is so people need to do. We, we've got over-deterministic. I think it's the engineering culture of the last three decades. Engineers don't like ambiguity. 
And anybody who's grown up in an agricultural environment knows that seed is cheap. So throwing seed around and seeing where it grows is a damn sight easier than doing massive surveys and optimizing your seed planting strategy. And we're not doing enough of that on social change. Yeah, it's, it's like we did a project for the UN on what was called the Finch Fund. And I mean, never scaled because it hit the politics. But what we wanted to do was to give small amounts of money to people based on the narrative of what's going on around them without the need for them to fill out a grant form. Because generally, people who are good at social entrepreneurship are really bad at filling out forms. But the only way we give them money is to make them fill out a form. So we did a really successful project on that, which we'd like to do more on, which is effectively finding areas where it's worth throwing some seed because it doesn't cost you anything. And then if it flourishes, bang, you go with it. And ab- absolutely. You know, it, it, I, I promised that was going to be my last, my last question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do like just just one more, um, which is the the white water world. Yeah, you know you 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 mentioned this I, idea of of navigation, and if we can't navigate it, we we drown. If we can, then we can emerge. And we've is that a, a state that is a natural state? Meaning like our our tropes lead us that way, or is that a, a state that is that is engineered for us? Because I I'm I, the reason why I asked the question is again, I think of the trope of the rugged individualism of, yeah. of the United States, right? Like so much of our world is sink or swim, all these ideas that yeah, that, leadership, fetish, yeah. which you suffering. do. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, that phrase is actually my friend Anne Pendleton's Julian phrase. She talks about whitewater worlds, right? And her book with John Cedar Brown is now becoming a classic of design thinking. And she's really good, right? Um, I think the point I and others would make is that everything is always changing, yeah? Sometimes it's like if you do whitewater rafting, right? Sometimes you can get into an eddy current. Sometimes you can find a pool. Sometimes you can have a rest. You know, there are ways to paddle upstream, but... And it's why I use, for example, the metaphor of the children's party story, which is still one of the best teaching stories I've ever created, because we actually would never think of our family lives as anything other but con- than continuous flow. And then we go into work and we try and make things static. And if you make things static and in a world which is flowing, you end up drowning. So the issue is, I mean, again, coming back to the metaphor, you have to paddle slightly faster than the current to have steerage way. And we're not doing that at the moment. We're, we're trying to dam the stream. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I had pages of notes and I, I got to admit, we didn't touch on everything, but we touched on a lot. And, and I think this is a, a, a conversation that I know for sure my listeners are going to appreciate. I, I want to do our final two segments of the show. Mm-hmm. The first one is off the dome. And I only really have one off the dome question. Um, I usually have three or four, but in, in the context of how we've been thinking about this stuff, my quick off the dome question is if you could have if you could be doing anything different than what you are currently doing, what would that be? Uh, I came very close to being a Jesuit, probably not. I failed yeah, I, the test of obedience, which has been the story of my life. But um, otherwise I'd be doing that. Okay. And I want to get to the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners that that we think could be of note. And I feel like throughout the course of this conversation, we sprinkled quite a few drops in there. There are lots of books and authors that were referenced, um, but drops don't always have to be books. So, and the drop could be anything at all. So 
I'm going to share a, a general notion of a drop that this wasn't my original drop, but it came through this conversation, which is I encourage folks to to study and, and read and get their mind around the abolitionist language as it pertains to current movements, at least here in the United States, toward defunding police and changing the way the carceral state works. And the reason why I offer that is because it's been an example that I've, that I've used more and more in my work, because it offers us an opportunity, again, I'm going to use this word imagination, to maybe think about what our, our current systems and cultures would look like if we didn't have the default of the carceral state. And in, in, the, in the way that narratives here in the United States are pushing that crime is exploding and what are we going to do about crime? It's, it's something that's taking me back to my time growing up in New York in the 80s where crime was so much on on people's minds and i look around and i say well the city's definitely not like that but yet this is what we're that's this is where we're spending our our time and our new mayor is very focused on i worked on 125th street the other day and i lived whereas when i almost didn't live yeah. when i lived there 20 years before so things are changing and things are definitely changing so you know there's many people doing this work around abolition ruth wilson gilmore is one of the leading thinkers in this space but there are many others that i'm not gonna list right now but i'm I'll, i will throw some other names in the in the show notes so just engage in that world and see what one thinks of it. And that's my drop. So you're up. I, I just throw one comment in on that. I think mm-hmm. if, you, if you look at defund the police, you've got the granularity wrong. And, and that's the problem with radical. I've been in radical movements all my life, all right, is you try and change the whole system. If you said defund X, Y, Z, that would be different. So I think, and, and this is a key thing in change, you have to find the right granularity where you've got a leverage point. Yeah? And if you're on a basic drop, for me, all right, it would mm-hmm. go walking or go cycling. Because actually, if you're not physically healthy, your brain doesn't work properly. And and that's where you do the assimilations. You're the second or third guest among my most recent guests who have recommended physical movement. Um, and physical movement is critical. <laughs> to me, it wasn't. When I reversed diabetes about six, seven years ago. Yeah, and now I'm back walking in the hills and cycling again. And I'm thinking faster and better. Yeah, and without that, I'd probably be dead by now anyway. So I think, and it is an issue with the states, it's almost impossible to eat in a healthy way in the US, almost impossible. And that's a way of keeping people down. Yeah, the diet is a repressive device, it always has been, and you can see it in the projects in Chicago and New York and everywhere else. Either way. No, serious stuff, food food deserts and and the inability to to find good food. I spend a lot of time in... In, in Europe and, and traveling other places, like I said, my family's is Caribbean. And I often tell people who are what I would call like purely American, which I don't consider myself to be, like you've they've never tasted really good food. They've never tasted what food is really supposed to taste like. Yeah, my local butcher, I choose between eight different varieties of pig when I buy pork, right? Absolutely. It's very different culture very, very different culture. Dave, I want to thank you so much for for taking this kind of madcap journey with me to have this this conversation. I, I really enjoyed having you on the show and thanks for being on the deep dive. Cool. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts, 
and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.